Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about the potential tightening in loan standards or lending rules um, as a result of uh, the Federal Treasurer asking the Council of Financial Regulators, which is a cabinet of all regulators, including uh, APRA, who look after the banks, ASIC, uh, look after financial advisors, uh, amongst a whole bunch of other things, the Corporations Act, and so forth. In, in any case, um, uh, what Josh was mostly concerned about is credit growth, and credit growth uh, massively outpay- outpacing uh, household income growth, you know, so if we're all borrowing a lot more than um, what our incomes can support, uh, potentially uh, there's some risks to the economy and, and risks to the financial services sector. And so Josh is concerned about that and has asked them to sort of look in, into that. Uh, of course, we, we all know that, you know, property prices have been rising uh, in Australia um, and particularly in some locations quite significantly um, and there's lots of reasons uh, for that, of course. Um, home loan, the increase in home loan lending is one of them. Uh, COVID and lockdowns and the inability to travel and spend on other items is another uh, factor. But really rising home prices uh, isn't something that you, that's unique to Australia. In fact, uh, Knight Frank, which is a uh, global uh, real estate business, um, uh, put out its global home price index report last week, uh, and what that what it does is rank uh, the housing price growth in fifty six countries, and Australia ranked eighteenth highest. So certainly not the highest, and certainly um, you know a lot of European countries, the UK, the US, and in fact I think New Zealand was number two or three. Uh, so there's a lot of other countries that have had price growth that's well in excess of Australia, but still uh, something uh, to be mindful of. And as I said, uh, one of the biggest causes obviously is demand, but we can see demand really through loan volumes. And um, certainly higher loan volumes have driven higher property prices. Um, But there's a chart, there's a few charts, in fact, uh, that I reference in this podcast uh, all of which obviously you can find on the uh, in the show notes or the blog on the website. But the chart put together by the ABS uh, shows that most of the increase is in own occupiers uh, rather than investors. So that's good because own occupiers tend to speculate to a much lesser extent than uh, than investors, uh, and it's that sort of speculation you don't want to arise in a market. Uh, and the other observation is uh, home loan lending has reduced. Um, uh, you know, over the last couple of months, but whether that trend continues, you know, w- w- it'll be interesting to see. But essentially, um, home loan volumes started to rise uh, in mid 2020, uh, and really, the average volume between uh, December 2020 and August 2021, um, so over that sort of period of time, uh, the monthly volume of of loans to own occupiers was 21.7 billion on average. And if you look at the 10-year average prior to mid last year, it's only about 11.6. So it's almost double the volume uh, in terms of home loan lending. And you could make an argument to say, well, um, that's okay, but maybe what we're doing is making up for a bit of lost time. Maybe volumes were below trend for a period of time. Look, I think that's true to some extent, 
but doesn't really explain the um, the the increase. When you have a look at you know the number of loans and the value of loans, uh, you can start to draw out what's really driving this. And about sixty percent of the increase has been driven just because of the increase in the number of borrowers, and about forty percent in terms of the increase in the average loan size. And so what I think that tells me is that there's certainly a lot more borrowers. So we're not, I'm not seeking to water that observation down. Um, but what it's sort of showing me is that uh, we're, we're getting more people at that top end of the market. And obviously that increases the dollar value of loans uh, because they're borrowing on average uh, maybe two or three times the average Australian borrows, um, and that tends to skew the numbers. Of course, it doesn't explain in total what's been happening because clearly there's a lot more borrowers out there that are that are seeking to upgrade their family home. So what I wanted to do next was have a look at, you know, how um, has this increased borrowing impacted household budgets? Uh, because if we're really worried about the spike in lending volume, um, uh, one of the impacts, obviously, is you know people are borrowing a lot of money, um, and that's all fine when interest rates are around two percent. But what happens when interest rates rise? And so what I have done is I've charted um, household liabilities and then um, looked at you know what the RBA has uh, collected in terms of data for for mortgage interest rates, um, and then applied or worked out what the interest bill is, the household interest bill. And that tells me, and that data is uh, goes back to 1988, so there's really three decades of data there. And it kind of shows me, I guess, the interest rate exposure uh, for Australian households. And it's it's kind of interesting to look at, you know, the, the amount of uh, debt that we've sort of um, taken on over that, that three-decade period. Probably the most interesting observation is the amount of indebtedness uh, in households. Um, and uh, of course, that has an impact. You know, if, if asset prices are rising uh, and we've got more debt, household balance sheets are, are stronger, and that's fine. Um, but if ha- if asset prices correct, or if interest rates rise, that could cause problems um, for for Australians, of course. But as I said, I think the most interesting observation is that we are, or households are far more sensitive to interest rate increases than they were 10, 20, 30 years ago, just because they've got higher levels of debt. And so um, the RBA uses interest rates to manage inflation, keep inflation in line. And so if inflation starts to rise, typically driven by increased consumer demand and consumer spending, one of the things that they can do is dial up the interest rate. Uh, which mean takes more money out of people's pockets, means they it calls cools consumer spending and therefore reduces the pressure or inflationary pressure in the economy. Um, and so, uh, I, I think it's probably entirely possible, if not likely, that interest rates maybe will be permanently below around six percent. You know, we won't see a return to pre-GFC levels when. You know, I recall interest rates, variable interest rates were getting high sevens, low eights uh, at a particular time. Uh, Because of the level of indebtedness uh, of Australian households, uh, I think it's, uh, there's a, a it's very, very unlikely we'll ever see interest rates above 6%. Now that's kind of good for planning perspective. Um, When I do my financial modelling for clients, I use an interest rates of 6.5% as like an average uh, interest rate. 
um, and j- just to sort of f- for a few different reasons, which I won't get into here. Um, but when you're doing your planning, using something around six or even five to six percent, I think uh, I think it's prudent. Um, as long as you're built in built in buffers, that interest rates might be outside of that band for uh, maybe a period of time, but it will only be a relatively short period of time. I would have thought. So the upshot is when you look at you know the liabilities in households and the amount uh, that that people are borrowed, I think the government is rightly concerned that um, you know you don't want to be lending someone ten times their income. Uh, you know that that high level of borrowing compared to income is is risky not only for the individual from a personal financial planning perspective, um, but if you're doing a lot of that in an economy, uh, that is also uh, creates some financial risk. So the regulator is very clear that it considers a high debt to income ratio as anything above six times. So if your family income is say two hundred thousand dollars between you and your spouse in terms of gross annual income. Uh, and if you have borrowings more than six times 200000 so that's $1.2 million, the regulator would consider you to be a high-risk borrower. And uh, there's another chart from uh, APRA, which is one of the regulators, that shows that um, high debt-to-income ratio lending has increased, and it increased in the June quarter by 2.8%, which is the the largest increase on record. So it does show that some lenders, some banks, are lending to people, um, uh, are lending a lot of money to people, which is kind of surprising in this environment because I'd still consider uh, credit to be relatively tight. And I think it's this cohort of borrowers that I expect the regulator to target. Uh, and they can do so by just simply instructing the banks to say, we want to see you reduce uh, your debt to income ratio lending below six. Uh, and it will just mean that people that are trying to borrow more than six times their gross annual income uh, are going to have to jump through a lot of hoops to get it approved. Um, and, and the chances are that the bank's probably not going to be interested because uh, they would just want to do whatever the regulator, of course, tells them to do. Now, this is all very prudent, of course, because I think, you know, we had an inquiry uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago and the client had, um, or the person inquiring, um, had about a family income of around 200000 and it had um, they had about $2.1 million worth of borrowings or something, so over 10 times their income uh, in borrowings. Uh, now, we, we declined to... Um, uh, have a conversation with that client because we just felt that that's just too much debt. You know, that's silly. So I think it's it's prudent to make sure we have the processes in place um, and the regulation in place to stop people from overborrowing because some people need to be safe from themselves and their own advisors sometimes uh, where they're, they're clearly borrowing way too much money and, that, and that's a risk to the economy. Um, but the problem with having these... Um, uh, prudential standards or these uh, these ratios is they can uh, cause some perverse outcomes, and so one in particular is asset rich, income poor uh, borrowers. Now I wrote a blog and did a podcast a few months ago where I talked about um, that the, the 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 situation where sophisticated borrowers should be um, uh, treated differently to unsophisticated borrowers, um, and in particular. Uh, the the problem at the moment or the challenge at the moment is that the banks will tell you they only lend against income, not against asset base. So that means you can have $20 million of cash in the bank, but if you don't have a job, uh, mainstream banks will just not lend to you. 
because they will say, we can't rely on your asset base to fund uh, loan repayments, which is just nonsensical, of course. Now, the banks blame the regulator saying, well, that's what the, the prudential rules tell us to do, is that we've got to prove or demonstrate serviceability from income. Uh, now, whether that's true or whether they're just being ultra-conservative uh, and hiding behind the, the legislation, uh, because there's an element here of credit managers that are employees don't want to lose their job or put, or put themselves at risk. Um, and, and that's been the case, I guess, over the last sort of five or six years where there's been tightening regulation. It's really filtered down to, you know, the, the people in the back office actually doing the hard work. Um, and now they're, they're so strict, strict and stringent, people worried about losing their jobs that they're just not prepared to move outside of policy or, or look at things uh, in, a, in a different way. So the point I'm attempting to make is that implementing a debt-to-income cap um, is probably necessary and it's probably prudent. However, lenders should have the flexibility to work outside of these parameters uh, where it's appropriate. So, for example, consider a situation where, you know, someone might have their family home, uh, an investment property, a big share portfolio, a whole bunch of cash, maybe half a million dollars of cash savings, but they only work part-time uh, and earn $20,000 a year because that's all they have to work. You know, in that situation, they would go to the bank and the bank in this environment would go, no, forget about it. We can't lend you a um, million dollars because that's, you know, a ridiculous multiple of your income. Uh, in those situations, people, banks should be given the flexibility to say, okay, this person's got a significant asset base. We can lend them a million dollars because, um, frankly, uh, the, the property is going to pay for all the, the interest bill anyway. And um, in regards to being or seeking a, a repayment of the loan, uh, that the, the client's got more than enough money to be able to do that. And anyone that has got themselves in a position that they've acquired that significant asset base uh, is probably or has demonstrated they're proven, uh, prudent with managing money. And that really needs to be the approach. But my fear is that the regulator comes and says, okay, here's your debt to income ratio uh, cap. And then a whole bunch of other people inadvertently uh, get caught up in that, in that regulation. Now, one of the other practicalities of uh, uh, a debt-to-income cap uh, being introduced uh, or imposed upon lenders is that I think it will widen the um, wealth inequality gap, uh, and that's not a and that's certainly not a good thing. So, I think um, high-income earners uh, will then be in the box seat because they will probably retain all their borrowing power, um, and everyone else will probably. Um, have a reduction in borrowing capacity. So, for example, if you think about a uh, a person with a family income or a family unit uh, with a family income of a million dollars a year, you know, there's probably no need or desire to borrow, say, $6 million, which is six times their income. $6 million is probably going to allow them to um, buy a family home, uh, invest in property, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, if they, uh, if a debt to income cap is imposed on very high income earners, it has no impact. Whereas a lower income earners will be most likely be impacted. You know, they're the ones that might be able to demonstrate that they can say borrow eight times their income. You know, if you consider that that's a prudent for them to do so based on a sort of cash flow analysis, uh, make sure they're built in enough buffers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. 
Um, but if that cap is introduced, you know, that means that those people aren't going to afford uh, to buy a home where they really want to live. They're going to have to move further out and or they might be able to buy the home, but uh, they're locked out of investing in the property market. So I think it just widens the gap between, you know, the, the people with really high income, which are, which are mostly um, avoided any um, negative economic consequences as a result of the COVID lockdown. You know, higher income people are typically in a stronger position today than they were uh, pre-COVID. Uh, and people with lower incomes uh, will be uh, mostly or probably only impacted by, by a change in lending rules like this. Now, what's the upshot for property values and property prices? Well, I like to focus my commentary only on investment grade uh, property because that's really what uh, my clients are, are mostly interested in rather than um, if you get sucked into a sort of macroeconomic commentary about all property in Australia, um, including, you know, um, regional, etc., you start to generalise and it becomes uh, meaningless. So with respect to investment grade property, investment grade locations, I don't think a, a, a debt to income cap is going to have any impact. Now, it might wipe out some borrowers, but there'll be plenty of remaining borrowers that have um, substantially strong financial positions, high incomes uh, that won't be impacted by this rule. So I think it's uh, I think it's something that needs to occur. You know that that uh, inquiry that I referenced uh, a few minutes ago, uh, where they had two hundred thousand of family income and two point one million of borrowings. That that's silly. I mean, something needs to change there. Um, so I think they need to do something. Uh, unfortunately, there'll be um, collateral damage. You know, people will be get caught up in that and further impair their ability um, to, to really get ahead financially. Um, and unfortunately, the higher income earners uh, won't have any impact. I don't say unfortunately. I say unfortunately from a, a wealth inequality perspective only, of course. But um, but really from a, a property price growth perspective uh, in investment grade locations, I don't think it's going to have any impact. Okay. That's it for me for this week. Uh, Until next week, bye for now.